I Take History With My Coffee podcast. Episode 9, The Spice Trade. We hope, with the help of God, that the great trade, which now enriches the mores of those parts, through whose hands it passes without the intervention of other persons or peoples, shall, in consequence of our regulations, be diverted to the natives and ships of our own kingdom, so that henceforth all Christendom in this part of Europe shall be able, in a large measure, to provide itself with these spices and precious stones. King Manuel I of Portugal, in a letter to the King and Queen of Castile, 1499. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Pumpkin spice has become the modern harbinger of autumn, thanks to the clever marketing of Starbucks coffee. In actuality, pumpkin spice is a blend of spices. It originated with the McCormick Spice Company in the 1930s. This coincided with the increased availability of canned pumpkin. This made it easier and quicker to bake pumpkin pies. Since then, pumpkin pie has become the seminal dessert of American Thanksgiving dinners. But the spices that make up this blend have a long and contentious history. Cloves nutmeg, and cinnamon are the main spices. Add to this black pepper, and you have the major spices sought after by Europeans and the ones that motivated them to explore uncharted territory in search of them. These were the spices the Portuguese wished to gain a monopoly over. Like any modern-day commodity, the economy of the spice trade was a complex system. In this episode, I will present a general overview of this trade in the 16th century, as it was after the Portuguese gained a foothold in India and discovered the Indonesian sources of spice. Clove and nutmeg are native to a handful of islands in Indonesia. These were collectively known as the Spice Islands. Their location was a closely guarded secret, unknown to Europeans until the Portuguese. Cloves are found on the Molucca Islands, roughly 780 miles west of New Guinea. They are the dried, unopened buds of an evergreen, which is part of the myrtle family. Nutmeg is the reddish-brown seed of another evergreen that grows in the sheltered valleys of the Banda Islands. This group of 10 small islands lies 1,200 miles east of Java. On one island, archaeologists have found traces of nutmeg on pottery shards dating back 3,500 years. 
the fleshy membrane that surrounds the seed provides another spice, mace. True cinnamon derives from several species of trees native to India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and China. Sri Lanka was the leading exporter of cinnamon by the 16th century. Though cinnamon was known in the ancient world, the Egyptians used it in embalming. Classical Greek and Roman authors believed it came from Arabia, like incense and myrrh. It was expensive as well. On average, it cost 15 times more than silver. The primary source of black pepper was the Malabar coast of India, with Cochin and Calicut being the leading exporters. It was one of the most precious of spices and often referred to as black gold. It is the dried, unripe fruit of the black pepper plant. The fruit is known as a peppercorn. This peppercorn can be coarsely ground or made into a powder and then used to preserve or add flavor to meats. Portuguese could never achieve a monopoly in the spice trade. They did not have the resources or the manpower to do so. They had failed in their attempts to block off the sea routes through the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf to Arab shipping. The Arabs shifted their trade overland, which the Portuguese could not control. After Magellan circumnavigated the globe, they had to compete with the Spanish. And unlike the Dutch and the English in the 17th century, the Portuguese did not attempt to seize control of production. They were content with trying to manipulate the marketplace and monopolize the distribution of spices. Despite a naval presence, smuggling and privateering remained an issue, and an illegal black market trade thwarted Portuguese efforts. Portuguese then relied on a string of fortresses from Africa to Southeast Asia and their sea power. Portuguese merchants who settled in the trading centers, most of whom were men, were encouraged to marry local women. This led to a blending of cultures and customs far from the watchful eye of the Portuguese monarchy. At times, the interests of those at either end of the trade route ran into conflict with each other. The Carrera das Indias, the India Run, was the physical link between Portugal and the trading communities of the Indian Ocean. It was the route along which settlers, information, and the trade of spices flowed. The armadas that left yearly certainly had a military role, but their primary purpose was economic. Ships were expected to return after an 18-month voyage with a cargo of spices of around 35,000 quintals of spice. A quintal is about 150 pounds. Between 1500 and 1653, it was estimated that some 900 ships sailed from Lisbon to Goa, while only 85% of those returned. The average number of ships and the percentage of ships returning steadily decreased so that by the end of the century, 
only half of those ships that left Lisbon returned. Initially, the Carreras were under the exclusive supervision of the Portuguese crown, but gradually the crown rented out to private ship owners or captains in the employ of the crown in place of a salary. The crown parceled out generous sets of privileges to foreign parties, so much so that foreigners had the same rights as Portuguese nationals. Private vessels sailed with the imperial convoy. The workings of the Portuguese empire were divided into two parts. The viceroyalty was concerned with government administration, military security, and territorial consolidation. The Casa da India was established to promote profitable running of the imperial economy, and it became the center of the mercantile workings of the spice trade in Portugal. The Casa de India was created for the Portuguese crown and owed its authority to it. The Casa de India was based on the factory system, as it was known in the pre-modern period. A factory was essentially a trading station or a production site staffed by 5 to 15 permanent people. A factor oversaw them. The factor was the official representative of the crown. Commonly appointed from the lower nobility, it was his duty to be a diplomat, informer, and manager of the king's financial interests. Factories were established in major trading centers like Goa, Calicut, and Cochin. They were clearing houses into which producers sent their product, which was then shipped to Lisbon. Even as the Portuguese gradually abandoned the idea of displacing the traditional intermediaries of the spice markets, they did create parallel supply outlets. They set about constructing factories and trading posts through which peaceful trade relations could be conducted. They became adept at the creation of client states through the use of tribute payments to local authorities. All the factories were under the administrative control of the Casa de India, which maintained its headquarters in Lisbon. Attached to it was the shipyard where the Portuguese fleet was constructed and moored. Also nearby were the warehouses, where naval supplies, provisions, and merchandise were stored under guard. The Portuguese crown envisioned Lisbon as a spice emporium. It was to be the center of the redistribution of spices throughout Europe. Initially, this didn't cause any issues with the use of licensing of private vessels and the extension of privileges. The king had his share of goods, the duties paid by private individuals, and the merchandise brought in by his own warships. The Portuguese crown actively traded spices on its own behalf, a situation unique in early modern Europe. Almost immediately, though, spice prices on the European market became depressed with the increase in supply and availability. Beginning as early as 1503, the crown sought to gain greater control over the volume of spice being brought into Europe. 
the January 1st, 1505 decree stated that private merchants could no longer freely dispose of their cargoes, the ones that they carried back on their ships. From that point onward, they were forced to sell their spice shipments to the Casa de India at a fixed price. Those same spices could then, in turn, be rebought at another price set by the crown. Afterward, buyers were able to do whatever they wished. The crown justified the difference between sales and purchase prices as a means to defray the costs of equipping and escorting an armed fleet and a way to stabilize prices. Meanwhile, there was a shift from Lisbon to Antwerp as the redistribution center. Antwerp had many advantages. It placed the spices closer to the high-demand markets of Northern Europe. It already had a long history of being a clearinghouse for European international trade. Due to its geographic position within the Rhine, Meuse, and Scheldt river deltas, it had ready access to both overland and water routes. It was close to the larger concentrations of population in Europe, as well as access to the North Sea. It did not have the exposure of an open seafront harbor, plus it had access to the financial services that were hard to obtain in Lisbon. This enabled the Portuguese crown to transact business without physically moving money around. And finally, since the early 15th century, the Portuguese had a factor residing in the city. The Portuguese attempted to gain greater control at the other end of the supply chain. Beginning in 1502, they instituted the Cartaz system. This licensing system enforced Portuguese authority over trade in the Indian Ocean. The Cartaz was a license that was provided at a low cost and granted non-Portuguese merchants the protection of the Portuguese Navy against privateers and rival states. It was extortion and it forced merchants to pay the license fee in Portuguese factories such as Goa. On an official level, no ship was permitted to sail within the region without this license. One risk being sunk or their cargo seized by the Portuguese if they did not. The Cartaz system had a significant impact on the commerce of the Indian Ocean. It limited the number of ships permitted to go to particular destinations. Asian and Arab merchants couldn't sail of their own free will, and the Portuguese decided how many ships were allowed to sail to a specific port. For example, Gujarati merchants, who had strong ties to the Arab Peninsula and the African coast, they never obtained the katazas they demanded. As a result, Arab, Indian, and Persian merchants suffered, and their maritime trade declined. In 1570, the Crown enacted a policy that enabled private traders to participate in the spice trade in exchange for a high customs fee. This policy was a failure, and in 1578, it decided to contract with private traders if the traders met specific quotas of spices. This allowed them to gain a monopoly over particular commodities, 
but this too ultimately failed. In 1597, the spice trade returned entirely under the control of the Portuguese crown. A significant shift, though, occurred in 1624. Dom Jorge Macarenas, a Portuguese nobleman, was granted permission to form a commercial trading company. This was the Portuguese East India Company, intended to get Portuguese merchants and those in Asia and Africa to invest in the trading venture and relieve the crown of its financial burden. A joint stock company was formed in August 1628 with very few investors. The crown became the principal investor at 80%. The Portuguese can never steer the global flow of trade or ensure their monopoly. By the early 17th century, their position had weakened considerably, both at home and abroad and this would eventually open the door for the more capable Dutch and English. Despite failing to achieve the monopoly they desired, the Portuguese did accomplish two other things of significance. They made contact with both China and Japan, and both of these events would alter the course of Asian and European relations for the next four centuries. We will explore these in the next episode. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.